Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha, good morning. Welcome to Island Conversations. To remind you, we are here on KWXX and B93B97 on Sundays, and these interviews repeat on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo on the following Fridays. Today, my guest is Hawaii County Prosecutor Mitch Roth. We last spoke with Prosecutor Roth on the radio last October, and of course, in the law enforcement field, there is always something to talk about. Good morning, Aloha, Prosecutor Roth. Aloha, and good morning. So, Prosecutor Roth, just remind us, how many prosecutors do you have in your office, and how many cases typically are you handling? Well, rather than just starting with the prosecutors, we have 35 attorneys in our office, but we have 120 people on staff. So that includes prosecutors, uh, clerical staff, victim witness, fiscal support. So we, we have a, a pretty large office. We're three different offices. We're in Hilo, we're in Waimea, and we're in Kona. And we get about 16, 17,000 cases a year, anything from traffic to murder and everything mm. in between. Well, and prosecuting attorney, let me just ask you, the difference between the Corporation Council, which is also an attorney organization within the county, and your office, the prosecuting attorney, what is the difference? Corporation Council deals with the civil lawsuits. We deal with all the criminal lawsuits in the, in the county. So if, if the police arrest them, they're generally going to be coming to our office. Generally, do you have a sense as to how long it takes from the time you all are given a case by the police to the time you can actually close a case out? You know, it really depends on the kinds of cases. Uh, it's different for, for example, juvenile family court cases. Those cases seem to take a lot longer, mainly because juveniles aren't arrested and held for trial. Adults oftentimes will be arrested and charged, and so those cases could move a little bit quicker. But there's cases sometimes that come in and they, they sit around for years. I'm, I'm working on a murder case right now that we indicted in 2016, I think, and it's taken a while to go through the system. And I have a feeling with changes in the law, with bail reform and everything that's going to happen, that's only going to make things take a little bit longer. What are the biggest challenges you have to bringing your cases to successful closure? You know, there's a whole bunch of things that are going on in the state right now with everything from our decisions coming out of the Supreme Court to our legislature. We're always in uh, times of flux. The other things that, you know, make our cases, we need people to testify. If you don't have witnesses, you don't have cases. And uh, so there, there's a lot of different issues. One of the things that you just mentioned is bail, and I know when we spoke last October, one of the things we talked about was bail, and we specifically focused that around the case of the man who murdered our officer, Bronson Kaliloa, how a judge had reduced his bail significantly against the wishes of the prosecutor's office. And I just want to ask you another question about bail. Recently, actually in November, several of those who assisted Justin Waikie, the murderer of Bronson Kaliloa, had their bail, what I would say as a layperson, significantly reduced. One person's bail was reduced from 500000 to 50000 another from $1 million to $100,000. There were a number of different people who had their bail reduced. And these folks were all people who were accomplices of Justin Waikie. 
and some of the charges were hindering prosecution, attempted murder. Now, I realize that I should not have an emotional attachment to the concept of bail, but I think everybody on our island has an emotional connection to Bronson Kaliloa. So what's up with judges lowering bail on people who you, the prosecutor's office, don't want the bail lowered? Well, and I think that's the first part people have to understand. It's not the prosecutor's office that's lowering the bail. It's judges. And, you know, a big part of this is what's going on in our jails. You know, if you look at the Department of Public Safety on their website, you can go to the Corrections Division, and there's a a page that shows what's happening in the jails on a month-to-month basis. So, for example, I just picked this up not too long ago. The last uh, bail study, I believe, came out on uh, March 31st. And what it shows at HCCC, our jail on this island, that's built for, I think, 200 and three or 206 people, uh, has an operating capacity of 226, and yet at any one date on March 31st, the date in particular, there was 403 people. At the end of February, it had 403 people. Uh, and, and if you go back, pretty much it's always going to be around that number. And, uh, you know, it's like a glass of water. You could only put so much water into the glass before the glass starts to overflow. And that's kind of what we're having. Now, there's a couple of ways of solving this problem. And the way that the legislature is taking is kind of like the, the tail wagging the dog. And that is to make this bail reform so we're letting people out of jail with less and maybe even no bail. At the same time they're doing that, and there's some reasons to do that, and there can be some genuine ways of doing it, they're not improving the screening that needs to be done. See, I think a lot of people need to understand that there are certain people, if you give them harsh punishments, they're going to recidivate or they're going to commit more crimes. There's a certain group of people that if you don't give them harsh penalties, they're going to recidivate or commit more crimes. The real trick is to knowing which are which. And you know, to do that, you need to have really good assessment tools. We're talking about those assessment tools, but I believe at the time they put these changes in, we won't have those. And so my fear is that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better. And if you add on to that some of the things that's happening at the legislature, making some of our crimes less serious, for example, our theft crimes, our thresholds went from if you stole more than $300 in value uh, to being a felony to now if you steal over 750 So that's a big jump there. Uh, so if you steal under 750 now, it's a misdemeanor, it's a less serious crime. That doesn't mean that, you know, it's not happening. It's happening a lot more frequently. You're basically saying, hey, it's okay to, to steal bigger amounts with lesser penalties. And of course, to the victim, it doesn't probably make oh, any no. difference. It could be a $50 theft, and it would make the victim feel as bad as if it were an $800 theft. Absolutely. And you know, we're all victims of, of, uh, of theft crimes, especially when you think about shoplifting and those kinds of crimes because we all end up paying more. And it seems like every time you turn around, we're paying more and more and more for stuff. But our legislature, rather than trying to look at other issues, they want to make things less serious. And that's really, uh, we've had a lot of challenges at our legislature in this last year, and we're expecting to have quite a few more, which I think is going to make the job of the prosecutors and the police a lot more difficult. 
Now, Prosecutor Roth, I think you sort of skirted around my real question. As I said, one should not be emotionally connected to bail because of a particular case. But a judge did lower the bail significantly for those people who mm-hmm. assisted the murderer, Justin Wyke. And I just don't get why, because these were not insignificant crimes. These were hindering prosecution. This was attempted murder. Comments? Again, and in, in, in those cases, we argued against the bail being reduced. Okay. And, you did, you did uh, your job. You we, did you your know, best. You, and right. it's, it's not, I guess I would have to ask judges why they make decisions they do. That's probably a better question to, uh, <laughs> to ask them why they do things, because you know, sometimes judges make decisions and we're left scratching our heads going, well, what just happened there? And uh, you know the community is left scratching their head, and oftentimes they're saying, "How come you, as the prosecutor, didn't keep bail up higher?" And it's really it's a lot of times out of our hands. And there's some other things that are happening that you know are also at play that uh, I think is going to make it a lot worse. One of the big ones is what's going on with drugs, and if you look around the United States and see what's happening with drugs, especially with opioids and things like fentanyl, that hadn't hit us in the past. We're starting to see that, you know, that's going to impact us quite significantly, especially if those people who are dealing drugs are getting lesser penalties because the legislature is finding that that's not as serious. And we can go into a whole bunch of different areas. I'll go into one for you before you even ask any questions, because I I think this is one of the bigger things that we need to look at. You know, we're looking at uh, legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Of course, that's not going to be considered this year at the legislature. Yeah. And, and, you know, but I think it's worth mentioning because a lot of people think about when you're thinking about legalizing marijuana, you're thinking about marijuana joints or marijuana cigarettes, uh, maybe smoking marijuana out of a pipe or out of a bong. And a lot of people who are a little bit older, like our age, which isn't too old, but uh, <laughs> Thank a, you. a little bit older. They think about the marijuana from when we were younger with a THC level of about 3 to 5% versus you know what they're seeing of 20 to 25%. Even the 20 to 25% people are still kind of accepting of marijuana smoking. What people aren't thinking about are things like marijuana or THC being used in vape pens where you have a THC percentage of upward of 90%. Well, and when you see kids using oh, yeah. vaping materials, and our legislature, actually specifically Sylvia Luke in the Finance Committee, shot down the bill that was to ban those candy-flavored vaping materials, which I've been told that they do oftentimes contain not just heavy, heavy concentration of nicotine, but also, as you say, sometimes marijuana. Uh, marijuana, THC, there's, there's also other things that they're finding in these things including like methamphetamine and fentanyl. And there's some pretty scary things that are out there that are being found. Unfortunately, we haven't really been testing those. So we're actually working together with our state uh, high-intensity drug trafficking arena, HIDA, to look at testing of a lot of these vape pens that we're uh, confiscating at schools because tobacco-free Hawaii is is telling us that about 10% of those may have marijuana or THC in them. And if you're thinking that the THC is up at 90% and that's what's happening with our kids, because we're seeing, if you talk to principals at our high schools and our intermediate schools, the state of Hawaii is actually leading the nation at those ages and using the vapes. And the other thing that we're hearing from our principals is that there's a lot of kids that are ending up going to the ERs 
that are seemingly high on things other than marijuana. However, when they do these studies across the country, they're finding that THC is broken up into two different classes, one that's a kind of a, a downer, one that's kind of an upper. And in the vape pens, when they're up at around 90%, it's THC, but they're reacting as if it's kind of like a, a meth-induced uh, high. Oh, that's interesting. So it's pretty scary, yeah. Well, it is scary. The other thing, if you're going to talk about legalizing cannabis in general, nobody wants impaired drivers on the road. And mm -hmm. right now the police have no way – well, they have drug recognition experts, but it, mm -hmm. they don't have something like a blood alcohol test like you do for drunk driving. That is correct. And marijuana dissipates from your system very quickly. So the way we do prove it, and we have proved these cases, is we prove it on impairment. And you know the law talks about impairment, not necessarily how much you have in your blood system. So we can prove both driving under the influence and doing drugs under the influence, other than with you know the blood alcohol concentrate or the the blood drug concentrate, by showing that the person was under the influence of a drug or alcohol and they were impaired in such a capacity that would prevent them from driving safely. I do need to mention one thing. At a recent cannabis forum that I moderated in Hilo for the Hawaii Island Chamber of Commerce, we had a doctor, and he talked about the fact that actually marijuana stays in the fatty tissues of the body for quite a long time. So if one smokes cannabis on a Saturday night, it can still show up if you're having like an employee drug test. It can show up for days or weeks, mm -hmm. and there's no real way to tell impairment for that. So the recognition of actions that indicate impairment is the best way to prove that somebody is has used some substance, no matter what it is. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations, and I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Today, our guest is Hawaii County Prosecutor Mitch Roth in part one of a two-part discussion. Part two airs next week, and that will include conclusion of a story he tells us at the end of today about possible corruption at a state agency. Plus, with Hawaii County Prosecuting Attorney being an elected office, we will talk about Prosecutor Ross' plans for 2020, which may not be what you expect. Before we get back to Prosecutor Roth, let's have a brief word from our sponsor, KTA. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. And now back to our conversation with Hawaii County's prosecuting attorney, Mitch Roth. Prosecutor Roth, you just were testifying before the county council about budget yes. issues. And I wanted to ask you about one thing in particular, and that is asset forfeiture, because several folks have asked mm -hmm. about this. And that is if police can show a relationship between a crime and property, such as when they go in to arrest a drug dealer and he has thousands of dollars in cash lying around, police are allowed to seize the property in a process called civil asset forfeiture. Correct. And you said in your testimony that generally... 50% of the proceeds go to the state, 25% to the prosecutor's office, 25% to the police. So I have some questions about that. How much money, first of all, is Hawaii County generally getting in that process? You know, we we, uh, we budget for 200000 in any one year. We're probably somewhere around $50,000 that we get from those funds. 
So it's, it's not like huge amounts of money. We have to be able to prove our case, we have to have probable cause, and there has to be some kind of nexus showing that there's a relationship to the drugs and the money. Either it was from proceeds or it was from facilitation of the crime. And there's a whole bunch of things. Everybody has to get notice. Everybody has a right to challenge that. Oftentimes what we find is we'll find uh, like a bag of drugs with money in it. If you can't prove whose drugs those are, whose money they are, it makes it very difficult under the what the changes that the state is asking to do because they're asking to make some changes. And then they're saying we want to have those funds go into the state general fund. Hmm. So it's just another way that the state has been taking monies away from the counties, starting with other issues like our hotel taxes that was designed for the counties. Uh, now that you know, we get very little funds from there. The state seems to, anytime there's funds out there, they, they try to take them. A lot of people don't know this, but our traffic tickets don't go to the counties. They go to the state general fund. So it's not like police officers are giving tickets for those kinds of no, things. But I'll let you go right. back to asset yeah, forfeiture. Back, back to asset forfeiture. A study that the state legislature commission that came out in late 2018 indicated that 26% of the cases in which assets were seized, and this is a statewide study, but 26% of the cases were actually never charged. And the question is, those from whom assets are seized still have to go through the courts to get their property back, even if they're never charged with a crime, even if they are found innocent. So that seems patently unfair. It seems like if the police and the prosecutor agree on seizing property mm-hmm. and the person's not even charged, why should the property not just go back to the person? Because right now they have to hire an attorney, go to court, and that seems like punishment. One of, so one of the things we have to prove in a criminal case is we have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person was responsible for the drugs. So if, we're, if you're a car with four or five people in there, there's a bag, the bag has drugs and it has money in there. So you have a nexus, you have to have, we have to have a nexus between. So if you have a, a bag of drugs in the car and then maybe someone who has money in their wallet that's in the back seat and the, and the drugs are in the front seat, that probably wouldn't get forfeited. But now you have the, the bag of drugs with the money in there. Okay, but if somebody's not charged, why do you not just give the property back? Well. Here's the problem. Let's get back to, 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 to the, the example. Okay. You have a, a car. There's five people in the car, four or five people in the car. There's a bag with drugs. There's no identification in the bag, but you have drugs and you have money. Who do you charge? Who's in possession of those drugs? It's very difficult to charge and prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt for every single one of those people. Yet, in a forfeiture, we have to give all five people a chance to claim ownership of the bag with the drugs. So that 26%, that's not an uh, uncommon occurrence. We go into a house, there's drugs, there's a safe with money, there's several people in there. We may not charge that case against the person because we don't know who we can prove the case against beyond a reasonable doubt. For the asset forfeiture, they still have you know a process which they go through. They have due process. They can, they can make a claim on the If they don't make a claim, then then those, those funds will probably be forfeited because you but, have to have to show a nexus. So there's still things that need to happen. But so, I guess it goes back to if you're not charging somebody, yet you've seized the property, and you're using an example of a money bag that has money and drugs. Mm-hmm. But That's a, not too uncommon. No, no, let, but let's say the case where you just seize money because you believe there's a nexus. If you don't charge somebody, 
they still have to hire an attorney to get their property back. To me, that just seems unfair. So, Sherry? Yeah? We believe there's a nexus. It's not that we believe there's a nexus. Mm -hmm. We have to prove there's a nexus between the drugs and the money. But it's, you know, when you you grow into a group of druggies, and again, 26%, I'm surprised it's that small because when you see a lot of these search warrants, there's cases, and not everybody inside those houses or inside those cars will get prosecuted. Generally, you know, there, there's very few people that make a claim on the money. Because they don't want to admit they were involved. They don't want to admit they were involved. But it, So what you're saying is there's no way to return the property because nobody will claim it. No, there is a way. You know, we'll have to return that property, but there's, there's no way of proving it. And the problem is, is that what they're setting up is a very dangerous precedence. One, it's going to reduce the amount of funds and stuff that we're going after. So you're really are, focusing on the money, the fact that the state wants all the civil asset money to go just into the state general fund, which I agree is a terrible idea. Well, I, I'm focusing on a, a couple of things. Okay. They're not only they're, they're saying you have to get a conviction for the crime. And a lot of times we're not going to get a conviction for the crime because we can't prove beyond a reasonable mm-hmm. doubt whose drugs and whose money it is. So we're going to give that money back to the drug dealers at a time where we're seeing you know, this opioid crisis across the nation. Just bear with me for a second. I know I shared these before with you. But last year we had over 72,000 people in the United States die of overdoses, of drug overdoses. Now, if you think about that number, 72,000, and you start putting in some other figures together, if you were to take a 747 jet and crash and kill everybody on board Every day of the year, you still wouldn't get to 72,000 people. If you were to take all the people that died in the Vietnam War that were Americans over the the entire span of the war, I was like 55, still not 72,000 people. If you were to take the people that died in any one year of AIDS, that's still not 72,000. 72,000 number is a a huge, huge number. And this this is a problem that's hitting places in the United States with terrible consequences. In the state of Ohio, I think they lost like 5,000 people to overdoses. How many people have we lost here in the state of Hawaii? Do you know? know? I, I, I don't know the exact figure, but I think it's under 100. But I can tell you this, this last year, I've lost at least three defendants from drug overdoses, and some of those were fentanyl-based. Now think about this for a second. Fentanyl, a lot of people look at fentanyl as the drug that they get the patch in the hospital that they do surgeries with, and they think about the patch form. We're not really so concerned about the patch form. We're concerned about the synthetic form that's coming from China through Mexico and going throughout the United States. That synthetic form, if you think of a, a bag of sugar or a bag, you know, a bag of sugar, you take one of those granules, that may be enough to overdose somebody. Yet that's going to be a a whole bunch of hundreds, maybe thousands of doses right there. Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than morphine and heroin. And this relates to civil asset forfeiture how? I'm going to tell you. Okay. Because you're now taking one of the tools that we have to battle drug dealing away from us. And you're making it a lot easier to sell drugs and poison our kids and our people and our families. You know, a lot of people thought about people dying of drugs and they think of those people over there. 
But if you go to places like Ohio, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, places throughout the United States, you'll find that it's ordinary people, people who got addicted to pain medicines and things like that. We need to really work hard to keep these things off, and we need all the tools on our belt. And asset forfeiture is one of our better tools in dealing with drug dealing. Well, the state is not proposing to remove the capability to do civil asset forfeiture. And what I'm really asking about is if somebody's not ever charged, how is it fair to require them to hire an attorney to get their property back? Well, what we do is we charge the money. So the money gets charged. And if you're you're a claimant of that money and you want to go after it, then you can. Again, but that means you're admitting that you're a drug dealer. Uh, that doesn't mean you're admitting you're a drug dealer. Just saying that for some reason your money was in close proximity and had this nexus to the drugs. Got and it. if you can explain why you know, your rent money was with the drugs, then you may have a defense. But it but, still does require you to hire a lawyer and go to court to make that happen. Uh, there's no law that says you have to hire a, an attorney to do that. Well, but yes, you, know, you have a better chance with an attorney. Yeah, well, I've talked to the American Civil Liberties Union about it, and it sounds like it's a really complicated process. It really would require a it's lawyer. It's not but, really a complicated. That's, okay. So first of all, okay. um, we, we do, give them all the sheets that they need to fill out. So there's a couple of ways they okay, can... Okay, so that, you, you do make it easy is what you're we, saying. We make it a lot easier than a lot of people think. Okay, well, that's good news. Let's move on to impaired driving because you have really focused a lot on preventing that. And I know that there was a plan to use ankle bracelets for continuous blood alcohol monitoring to sort of supplement the ignition interlock, which doesn't allow me to start a car if, I'm, if I've got a blood alcohol level. That's correct. Whatever happened with those ankle bracelets? I heard there were some issues with that. Um, well, there was a bill that was actually passed last year, and, and really that's up to the judiciary to put them people on, on I believe they're called SCRAM, is mm-hmm. the, the, the vendor that's, that's using it. And it's a transdermal alcohol uh, it will, it will let you know if, if they're using alcohol and there's GPS tracking that's on them. Um, it's one of the other tools. So there, there's a lot of things we're looking at in impaired driving. Uh, that is just one of the various things that we're looking at. Is it a particularly good way to handle it? Is that something you guys are advocating? You know, we're advocating for ignition interlock. We're advocating for the, the scram alcohol monitoring. We're advocating for you know, other things that aren't really alcohol and drugs related. You know, one of the biggest things that people are dying from is distracted driving. And here's something I, I didn't know until uh, just the other day that on your phone, if you have an iPhone, you can set your phone to do not disturb while driving. And if we had people that were doing that, our roads would be a lot safer. One of the things that's coming up that we're worried about are the vape pens. You know, we have vaping devices. Like I said earlier, they, they, our kids are using those at, at higher rates, but we're also seeing people who are using those and uh, with THC and driving, and it's a lot harder to detect if they're, they're driving using a vape pen with THC. So that's a challenge that we're, we're looking at combating. Well, you talk about impaired driving, and clearly that's a horrible thing, and you can recognize when people are texting and driving just because of the way they drive, even if you're not a law enforcement professional. Mitch Roth, there have been some big issues on this island with how the state works here on our island, some of the state agencies. And the one that gets the most attention is Department of Land and Natural Resources, I would say. (laughs) And you are laughing because, you know, they've been at odds with the community over several of their attempted initiatives, including 
especially, I'd say, oversight on public waters. And this goes back to when they wanted to put many, many additional moorings at Cuyahoe Bay and were stopped from doing so because it was clearly ill-advised. A local fisherman who has a mooring at Cuyahoe Bay reported, claimed, and has documentation that Department of Land and Natural Resources actually falsified his documentation, mm-hmm. believing, and he believed it was in their attempt to not grant him his rightful place in line to get a mooring. And I know that you have been actively involved in this kind of thing with Department of Land and Natural Resources, and I'm wondering if you can help us understand what the situation is, where things stand. So with that particular complaint, it came to our office. We, there was uh, not enough at initial site to prosecute, and so we sent him a declination letter declining the case. He called up and he asked to speak to me. And uh, he started telling me that there was people in Department of Dobor, under Department of Land and Natural Resources. That and that's, were, that's Department of Boating and Ocean Recreation, right? right? Okay. So he told me that there were people who were retaliating against him. And so I started looking into it. And I was quite frankly appalled to find out that I couldn't get anybody to say anything positive about them. And uh, so I made a complaint. And then the next thing happened is... They audited him, and I felt, wow, that's kind of interesting. It's kind of like a retaliation. And when you say they audited him, meaning Dobor. Dobor. And I'm going to interrupt here and say there's way more to this story, and it's pretty interesting, but you've got to wait till next week to hear it. So please join us next week for the continuation of my conversation with Hawaii County Prosecutor Mitch Roth. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. To all the listeners, thank you so much for being with us. Until next week, please let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahui ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.